church. Scott grew up in this church, as well as did his brothers and his sister. And uh, so it's a real privilege to have him back. His parents, Frank and Betty, were very special in my life. In fact, I heard a story once that when Frank moved here, like in 1947, he told Dick Davies that he was only going to stay a year or two and then move on. And uh, what was it? 60 years later, he was still here. And uh, so we are thankful, and, and Scott has an extensive uh, ministry uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary as well as around the world as he has opportunity to teach uh, theology as well as uh, have a real emphasis on world missions. So, Scott, would you bring a greeting? I'm going to stay up here. Okay. As, uh, as a congregation, uh, I was with... Uh, Juna Davies here just uh, just a couple days ago, and Bud, and Ken Fa yesterday, and we were talking about Ken and I actually remember when this was only a basement, and this auditorium had not yet. So you know we're really old. I guess I can put it that way. Uh, but we all looked at each other and thanked God for this church and the heritage that the Lord has given us with friendships that go back decades, uh, really to our childhoods. And out of that, that, those friendships and deep fellowship, uh, God has used us in different ways in different places. And some of you know that very well uh, because you're forming those as well. Some of you are rather new here, as I'm understanding. So this is a wonderful place to, to in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit, build relationships that go deep, for life. In fact, my f- best friends in the world are still the ones I grew up with here. So, and you are my home church, though I rarely show up. You've seen my brother Stan a little more. So, if I look a lot better than him, and you ex- explain, <laughs> you know, you get us mixed up. That's that's that. We give each other bad time. Uh, you, the heritage. I, I have had the joy of being uh, teaching occasionally in the Middle East, and at one point was in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Some of you know this. Some of you don't, but Ephrata here was, as the myth goes or the truth goes, Bill Carell is your real historian, but uh, this looks so much like Bethlehem that it was called, because the Bible speaks of Bethlehem Ephrata. Uh, that goes back 4,000 years. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob buried his beloved wife Rachel in Bethlehem, and you see it again and again. Ruth, the book of Ruth, uh, this woman born in another and raised in Moab, not a Israel uh, nation, and yet, and yet, following, uh, well, Naomi, following them back, Ruth becomes uh, the the uh, the mother of uh, a grandmother, a couple generations down of David, and of course, King David is the most famous uh, Jewish. Uh, person of all of history, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ as King David and the Messiah in Micah 5.2 is promised as one who would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. And I was rather amazed when I was there to look up at the hill on which Bethlehem situates and Herod's what's called a Herodium, a huge fortress he built out of, he created a mountain fortress by slave labor. But there is Bethlehem up above. And Ephrata is really the larger area goes up above Jerusalem, and it's, it's there. So I think back, what a, what a place to be ministering, what a place to live. There are very few Ephratas in the world, and, and this is uh, one of the four I'm aware of. There was a monastic community 
they didn't marry or anything in Egypt. And, uh, and so, uh, well, uh, if you don't have children, you don't last very long. So that one's gone <laughs> on the Nile River. One in, one in Pennsylvania, some of you are familiar with. So heritage, even in terms of the name, but I, I think back, the earliest pastor I can remember was uh, Dr. William Wrighton. You're just a little kid here, what do you know? Uh, I knew nothing about his background. And I still didn't, I, I had the joy of being an interim pastor here and an associate pastor with Pastor Stoops even before that, her assistant. I knew nothing about this Dr. Wright, other than that he was a tall Englishman who loved the Lord. Some of you remember back further than I. But Ken Faw over in Redmond uh, went to the Billy Graham Center and got the boxes of correspondence to this William Hazor Wrighton. And I'm looking at, at articles written about him by the most famous theologians uh, in the country at that point. And they're talking about this man who was asked to found the Department of Philosophy at the University of Georgia and then began discipling young men. He was the chair of philosophy at the University of Georgia. I have a number of students at Dallas Seminary from that very school. And they sent them out as evangelists. So he was called the praying professor. So he's written books like A Philosopher's Love for Christ, A Philosopher's Victory Through Christ. But we knew nothing of that. He taught at Gordon-Conwell and some other well-known schools. At Wheaton, uh, we have a letter of Billy Graham written to Dr. Wrighton, thanking him for a smiley, beaming face in the Seattle Crusade, Billy Graham's first. Uh, he was one of several who did a, dis, a record of Bible exposition that included, it was like a who's who. He became president of Western Seminary in Portland when it was small and it began to mushroom under his leadership. So Ken and I kind of look at each other and why did he come to a little town of Ephrata, of maybe about the same as today? And, and we don't know other than that he was one who had a burden for those who worked in farming. And, on the, and uh, in any case, the Spirit of God led him here and he died several months after leaving this church. So I look back to him. I was a Little guy sitting where Bill Hewitt's sitting right now in a church, and the invitation to receive the Lord was given. And I couldn't even see him because I was a little tiny guy, and everyone else was standing. But I finally came forward, and there was Dr. Wright, and he was six foot four, looking down on me. And he had tears in his eyes, and he said, Scotty, I've been praying for you. Uh, that so moved me. And then as he, I had no idea he was a doctorate in philosophy and all of this, as he opened up the Gospel of John so simply for us kids and other adults that were coming, wanting to be baptized, uh, it was uh, powerful. I'd walk out of the little, what was then the parsonage, uh, my heart burning as a nine-year-old as this man made simple the Word of God. So I shared that, and Ken Foss said, hey, I came forward under Dr. Wrighton, and then my brother Don, who's a pastor in Shoreline, Seattle, he came forward. We were all just little kids. And then Bill Carell. Bill, didn't you say that, wherever you are? Uh, yeah. Um, and as, as Wes was saying, open our eyes, uh, I'm reminded by that because I think, how many children in my home church, uh, this is kind of my home church, but another one, I don't even know their names. Uh, I just pass over them, and here's this man in our church praying for the children. John Stott said, a very powerful thing a number of years ago uh, when some were complaining about not being able to remember the students' names uh, in graduate schools. And he said, if you pray for them, you'll remember their names. 
So how true that is. And I look back and then Don Stoops and he mentored me in so, so many ways. And, and Bernie Travail, some of you know these names and some of you have never heard of them, John Holkey and others. But as we come now, and Pastor Gary, I love this man, solid in the Lord, solid in the word. He loves you folks. He has a burden for Ephrata. I rejoice. You have a heritage here at Ephrata First Baptist, for which I thank God. Well, I better wrap it up here, Gary, except to say I was standing right here when I married my wife, Ruth. We tripped <laughs> down the aisle, literally, uh, stumbled a bit, and uh, we lived in this little tiny building beside the church for 10 months. That was where we lived for a while as uh, we were here at the church. So one of our daughters was born here when there was a hospital. And uh, yeah, so, so looking out and seeing some of you who I've known all my life almost, uh, I, I just want to say thank you in the Lord Jesus for being our family, for being our friends. Uh, you supported us on the mission field for 20 years, and my brother Stan and at many other points. We rejoice. We thank you. May God bless this church deeply. So, Gary, thank you. It's a joy to be here. Yeah. Thank you, Welcome Scott. Man. Yep. Thank you. Uh, Scott and I both, I think, aspired to join a monastic community. As one uh, person said one time, it's good if a man remains single, but if he marries, he can become a philosopher. So uh, that's Scott and I are heavy in the philosophy in this stage of life, but uh, we are thankful for you, Scott, and for your family. Had a great uh, imprint upon this fellowship and upon ongoing ministry here. Let me pray this morning as we begin here. Heavenly Father, thank you for blessing us with this morning. I thank you for Scott and Ruth and for their family. Thank you for his ministry at Dallas Theological Seminary and the teaching load that he carries, as well as uh, missions responsibilities during the summers. And Lord, I pray for Scott that he would uh, have perseverance, endurance, and great blessing, Lord. We thank you for him and the blessing he is in many thousands of lives as he has touched them uh, through his teaching ministry. And thank you that he's here today, and we pray for his safety. And as he returns to Dallas and goes back uh, into the uh, teaching uh, classroom, and Lord, we thank you uh, for the homeschool co-op. We thank you uh, for Erica and others who are involved in that. And thank you, Lord, uh, for many of the educators in our fellowship here who uh, teach our children. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you for our children downstairs and in the nursery and for those who minister to them. And we pray that each one would grow in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on this day. And Lord, we do uh, pray for uh, those in Haiti and on the east coast of our country who have suffered great loss and some have lost lives as well as uh, everything uh, that they own, Lord. And we pray for the country of Haiti. It seems like it's always uh, in the news with great difficulty as the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And Lord, we pray for those who are relief organizations and missionaries and people who are even today there uh, trying to help. Lord, we pray for them. Also, Lord, we pray for our nation. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy as believers in this country. We thank you, Lord, uh, for a, a long history of being able to meet freely like we are here this morning, to own copies of your word, as many as we'd like. We praise you and thank you for that. And we do, Lord, pray for our nation, pray for our president, and we pray for this political process, Lord. And we pray, uh, we know that uh, your word tells us that you rise up, raise up kings and you take them down. And Lord, we just need to trust you 
with the outcome of this election. And Lord, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for those who went before us to translate it into our heart language and make it possible. Thank you again for those Bible translators around the world who are working to translate your word into the heart language of many peoples who have yet to have that great privilege that we have enjoyed for many, many decades and centuries. Lord, thank you for this morning. Pray that we would be attentive to what you have for us today, for it's in your Son's powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. If you take your copy of Scripture and turn to the little letter of Galatians, we will continue our study there. We've started this a couple of weeks ago. I did an introduction, a little bit of an overview, and last week we looked at the first 10 verses of uh, the first chapter of Galatians. I was reading this week uh, one of uh, an older version of Time, and uh, the title of it was, the article was, the world's 100 most influential leaders. The world's 100 most influential leaders. And of course, the Dalai Lama from Tibet showed up in that list. And uh, one of the commentators on his selection was Deepak Chopra. You may be familiar with him. His books show up in every airport book stand, as well as uh, on uh, public television and elsewhere very popular uh, mystic writer, if you will. and But he wrote uh, a, a, an addendum to the Time magazine article on the Dalai Lama, and he writes these words, and I quote Deepak Chopra, the most inspiring thing the Dalai Lama ever told me was to ignore all organized faith and keep to the road of higher consciousness. Without relying on religion, we look to common sense, common experience, and the findings of science for understanding, he said. Well, if you've listened to the Dalai Lama or have read anything he's written, he does sound wise, and his words certainly do fit the mode of our, our mood of our culture. And, uh, but we really must clearly see what his advice truly means. Uh, when I was in college as an undergraduate student and before, because I've told you before, I didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior until I was 28 years old. But in college, I took great pride in being agnostic, which is a philosophy which says nobody can know for sure if God exists, you know. We just don't know. And uh, I call it the lazy man's approach to the deity. Uh, I moved briefly to atheism until an agnostic English professor challenged me and asked me if I had been in every square foot of the universe which I said, no, I had not. He said, then how can you know there is no God? And so I quickly retreated to agnosticism again. But the Dalai Lama's approach appealed to me, but his advice, that kind of thinking, that uh, thinking about all organized religion is bad and only follow your own consciousness, it means that you ignore the church of Jesus Christ because it's in that pot of organized religion which Jesus himself said that he would build. It means you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God coming in the flesh, crucified for our sins, raised from the dead, because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, flies in the face of all common sense, of all human experience, and science itself, doesn't it? Make no mistake, the gentle man with the wire rim spectacles and the maroon robe is offering a device that will lead you away from the only way of salvation, 
The Apostle Paul is dealing with this in Galatians. If you've been with us, you know that he is writing to combat a heretical presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. The churches are being inundated and influenced and uh, basically penetrated by a false gospel, which he says, as we saw last week, is no gospel at all. It's not good news. These false teachers coming out of a Jewish background are called Judaizers, and they were trying to apply Jewish uh, law, ceremonial law, to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, which Paul had taught. As I said last week, that Paul makes this statement in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, so clear and so powerfully that he said, even if I taught you a different gospel or an angel from heaven taught a different gospel, they should be anathema, which means condemned to hell. And I told you last week that there are a few things in the world that I'm willing to die for, but I am willing to die for the gospel, and I think many of you are too the truth and the purity of the grace of God poured out in the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. And yet these false teachers were adding human works to this thing we call salvation, and the people were being duped. And this wasn't a problem that was just isolated to the first century in Galatia, what is now modern Turkey, But this is a problem we have with us today because there are all sorts of calls out there to add to the gospel. Repent and believe. Believe and be baptized. Believe and go to church. Believe and make Jesus Lord. All sorts of things that sound good on the surface, and yet when you dissect them, what is the basis of the ability for you and for me to stand before a righteous, holy God and to be found not wanting, not sinners? And it is only in Christ. Christ died for you and for me. His righteousness, which is perfect, which is infinite, is imputed to us. That's the only way. It's not because I'm a good guy or because I go to church or because I've been baptized or because I say certain words. It's by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, by his grace through faith. Christianity is supremely a faith movement of conversion. Have you ever thought of that? Ultimately, like we say in our purpose statement, we are here to bring glory to God, to display his glory in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, we are called to be worshipers of this almighty God. And yet everything we say and everything we believe is built upon the fundamental and revolutionary premise is that you don't have to stay the way you are. You ever thought about that? You don't have to stay the way you are. Your life can be radically changed by God. As mine was, as an agnostic college student, an atheist, back to agnosticism, he radically changed my life when I was 28 years old. He invaded it. Even though I had sat in a church my whole life before that, like I said before, I was simply a pagan, not believing, rejecting the faith, And Jesus Christ invaded my life and changed my life, opened my eyes to the truth of John 3.16, personalized it for me for the first time. Can you imagine that, John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in all the world, one I'd probably learned in Sunday school when I was two years old or three. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I memorized that. It's the old King James, too. It's the only way I can remember it. And, uh, but when I was 28, it was, for God so loved Gary. 
And for you, it's, uh, you know, we put your name in there. If Gary believes in him, he will not perish but have everlasting life. And once I understood that, he opened my eyes to belief. By grace through faith. Grace, unmerited favor. I did not deserve that at all. I can identify with Paul when he says he was the worst of sinners. Now, you've got to remember, at that time, I was a logger in western Montana. In fact, there was an organization uh, after becoming a believer that I joined called Christian Loggers. We had big yellow buttons that we would wear on our coats downtown into the store and stuff. And I was standing in line one time at the grocery store with my Christian Loggers button on. And this guy in front of me turns around, reads it, and he says, you can't be a Christian and a logger. <laughs> that was the reputation. God can change your life. When God enters the picture, your life will never be the same again. It never will be. I don't know how many times I've told you, you get tired of the story, but uh, I'm very introvertish. I, I would have been happy living on a mountaintop over in Montana without any neighbors, any people, okay? In fact, when I became a believer, we started going to a local church there in Whitefish, Montana. Oh, hold your hand over your heart, Whitefish. Yeah. <laughs> no. I would break into a cold sweat if they'd asked me to help with the offering. I mean, that's just walking up the aisle helping with the offering. No way was I going to speak in front of people. And then God showed me Exodus chapter 3 where Moses said, I can't, I can't, I'm not good at speech, I'm not doing, who made your tongue? <laughs> who made your, you know, he challenged Moses on that account and that challenged me and I just said, God, whatever. I mean, I'm happy to stay a logger, but whatever. And he changed my life, changed our lives. He changed our family's life. God does that. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. We have the conviction that our long-held prejudices can be overcome, lifetime habits can be broken, and deeply ingrained patterns of sin can be erased over time. For some people, it happens overnight. For others, we struggle with certain things much of our lives. And yet, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word, conversion is the certainty that what uh, you were does not determine who you are, and what you are does not determine what you will be. You can be changed. You can be different. Your life can move in an entirely different direction. But we come to this passage in Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11 through 24. We won't finish it today. We will finish it next week. But remember, Galatians was written to remedy a very desperate situation present in those churches in Galatia and present in every generation of Christians and churches since is to call early Christians back from a false gospel, from one that was trying to amalgamate or combine the Mosaic law with salvation by grace through faith, from legalism to faith, from depending upon works to depending upon totally upon God's grace in Jesus Christ. Galatians forcefully answers the question, are we saved by believing or by achieving? And the Apostle Paul has jumped in with both feet into this debate, into this issue. 
And we see here that the Apostle Paul goes on to defend his apostleship. Remember in chapters 1 and 2, he is being attacked because it's what we call an ad hominem attack, and we should be very familiar with that because that's all that's happening in the race for the presidential uh, office. It means that you attack the person. You don't even attack their ideas. You attack the person and who and what they are. So Paul's apostleship, being appointed by Jesus Christ in this technical office of apostle, is being attacked. And then they attack his message saying, well, you were taught by some of the guys over in Jerusalem, the, the, the leaders of the church there, or by Barnabas or somebody was teaching you this. And he's saying, no, I was not. His primary application is the fact that there is a divine source to the gospel. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me again. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor I was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you were to go back, and if we had time, we would read Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 26, uh, because there is the historical accounts of what Paul, again, is going to relate to us here in Galatians. Three times in the New Testament, we have the record of Paul's conversion and uh, his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and then what happens afterwards. And so this divine source of the gospel, the source is not man, the source is Jesus Christ. Even though uh, these Judaizers, these false teachers had the Old Testament text and they had the code of the Mosaic law and they had the creed of Jewishness, uh, and to them that was the truth. And they were going to pass it on to others and they were infiltrating the new, new or younger churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet these people were dying spiritually. To know the truth, we must know the Son, A.W. Tozer said. It's one thing, uh, you can know all about this in an academic sense, and yet if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're missing the point of what is going on here. In verses 13 through 24, we have the life-transforming power of the message. And of course, here the Apostle Paul is relating his personal history for the purpose of distancing himself from these attacks upon his character and upon his message that he did not receive it from uh, the, the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave him the gospel message which will be affirmed in Jerusalem. And so he goes through three basic sections, and this is where we will, I'll just outline them for you, and then we will partake of communion together. He talks about his life before conversion in verses 13 through 14, his life at conversion in 15 and 16, and then his life after conversion in 16 through 23. Uh, your past is not, your, your past is in the past, excuse me. And that's what the Apostle Paul demonstrates. He had a reputation in his former manner of life his reputation for works is what he had. And then his life at conversion, that's the turning point of grace. God set him apart at birth, called him by his grace, revealed the Son to him. And then a life after his conversion, you are no longer who you used to be. The Apostle Paul is probably the most famous conversion in the New Testament. And he demonstrates here that he moves from being a persecutor of the Christian church to a preacher in the Christian church. He moves from being a terrorist to an evangelist. You read Acts 9 and Acts 26 and elsewhere, 
you'll see what the, what, what the Apostle Paul was before he was converted. And so we come to this. A.B. Simpson is reported to have said that the gospel tells rebellious men that God is reconciled, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked, the condemnation of the sinner canceled, the curse of the law blotted out, the gates of hell closed, the portals of heaven opened wide, the power of sin subdued, the guilty conscience healed, the broken heart comforted, the sorrow and misery of the fall undone. And so we come today to this opportunity to partake of the Lord's table. Remember in the primary passage, the central text for the observance of the Lord's table, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If the men who are going to help serve would come up and be seated here in the front. In this passage, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me twice in there. So we approach this as a memorial feast. In fact, if you want really more interesting observations and understanding of the Lord's table, watch Dallas Seminary's, uh, what is it called, the table, round round table discussions, interviews. You were with Dr. Bach. Yeah, table talk. You can get online and you can watch that. And Dr. Scott Harrell was one of the participants in this discussion about communion or the Lord's table. And it's very insightful and it'll help you understand other approaches to uh, what we call communion or the Lord's table. But we approach it as a memorial time to do as uh, Christ commanded us to remember him. And my personal challenge every month is, uh, what do I remember? And I remember the story I've told you about this pagan, atheist, agnostic guy who Jesus reached down and opened his eyes to the truth of John 3.16. I remember God's faithfulness since then and how he has led and guided us and in fact don and i at times find it very humorous that she's a pastor's wife and i'm a pastor that's just a private insight just for you but it is it's if you know where we came from it's just kind of hilarious and uh, but i am so thankful and as we remember as you you have memories of what god has done in your life Perhaps today you don't because you've never taken that step of receiving the grace through faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a free gift that Jesus is offering. For God so loves you that he gave his only begotten son that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. Every time I look at conditions in scripture, I look at the consequences What a wonderful verse. The consequence is everlasting life, but the condition is simply believe in him. Over 150 times in the New Testament, salvation is conditioned on belief in what Jesus Christ is offering, everlasting life. Do you believe him? So the Lord's table is for those who have already trusted in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. And it is simply a time where we remember with very common elements the bread and the cup. And uh, Jesus took these elements from the Passover meal. And in Luke 22 is the record of the first Lord's Supper, where he is the fulfillment of that Passover ritual that had been going on for centuries for Israel. And he was the fulfillment. That was their longing for this Messiah to come, and he came. And that night before his, his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, he applied these meanings, and we look back upon that. 
And we look at the bread and the cup, and he says, remember. And so my challenge to myself is, what do I remember? And that's my challenge to you, hopefully through Scripture, is what do you remember? And we could probably stay here the rest of the day if we went around the room and you related your story. And that's why it's so important to relate your story to others, because it is important to write it down. Make sure it's there for your children, your grandchildren, or other relatives. What a great testimony. And plus, it is a great way to share with other people. And we've talked about that. Remember, uh, earlier this year, we had everybody prepare a three-minute testimony. Well, that's based on that passage out of Galatians where Paul, in verses 11 through 24, if you read through that, that's a three-minute testimony, before Christ, at Christ, after Christ saved me. Uh, So this is nothing new. And so today we come to the Lord's table, the bread and the cup. And Jesus, uh, well, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said. So I'm going to ask Dave Johnson to give thanks for the bread this morning.
in our fingers. We're holding a small morsel of bread. And uh, I understand that every culture has some form of bread. And it's uh, got many ingredients in it. Of course, it's unleavened because leaven in the Old Testament was a sign of sin. And Jesus Christ is without sin. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember him together. The record goes on to tell us that in the same way he took the cup after that supper. And that's Dave Gossett to give thanks for the cup. There is no other hope that I can see. I need His blood. Oh, yeah. Without the blood, there be no reason for my singing. Without the blood of my Jesus. Without the blood, this very song will lose its meaning. Crying, there is love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Jesus took that cup in Luke 22. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is an agreement, and in Scripture there are conditional covenants which depend on both parties who make it, and then there are unconditional covenants. And this is an unconditional covenant. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this, and it took his blood to fulfill it. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us remember our Savior together. Paul's words go on to tell us what we have just accomplished here. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Even though you may not have said a word, together we've proclaimed one of the fundamentals of the faith and that we believe Jesus is coming again. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the Lord's table. We thank you for the opportunity to participate together in that. And Lord, may we not forget this time together through this week, but you would bring it to remembrance and help us to remember you in all that you've done for us. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. At the feet of Jesus, the greatness of mercy and